Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. There was actually a large research project to find out the funniest joke in the world that got broken down by country. And this is the funniest joke uh, to Belgians. Why do ducks have webbed feet? Answer, to stamp out fires. Why do elephants have flat feet? Uh, the answer being, to stamp out burning ducks. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. And from the Frank Stanton Studios in Los Angeles, this is the Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win your next dinner party. Our icebreaker this week came from the godfather of nerdcore hip-hop, MC Frontalot. Thank you, Front? Should I call him Front? You can call him Front. Front? His friends call him Front. All right, coming up, we have writer George Saunders, North Korean pants, a teenage Warren Sivan, a stone from outer space, and ideas for leftover turkey. Not all of them involving turkey. Mysterious. But first, time for small talk. So, Brendan, a very serious news week. Okay. Uh, Topping the headlines, a couple snuck into a state dinner at the White House Mm. And Tiger Woods apparently had an affair. Wow, that is serious stuff. Oh, and we're sending tens of thousands more troops into war in the Middle East. Oh, yeah, then there's that. God. For more important news, we spoke to our colleagues at Marketplace. <sighs> Stacey Vanek-Smith, senior reporter for Marketplace. What's your story? Well, a man in Japan just got married to a virtual girl from a video game. And they say that video games make people isolated and act strange. Yeah, clearly that's not the case here. It was part of a video game called Love Plus, and there was a virtual lady on there, and they they got married. I guess it's one way to stop cyber sex, virtual marriage. (laughs) The virtual headache. It's coming. George Judson, managing editor, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? There will be no sidewalk Santas in New York this year. I don't understand. What? Well, the sidewalk Santas work for the Volunteers of America, and there's no money to pay them. I don't get sidewalk Santas? What are you... The men in Santa costumes collecting money for the needy? There's only one Santa, George, and he lives in the North Pole. I think I need to tell you something. I'm not listening. Millie Jefferson, production assistant in Marketplace. What story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, apparently North Korea is putting its first pair of designer jeans on the market. Are you serious? Yeah, they're going to be sold in Sweden for 215 American dollars. Wow, so the nuclear centrifuge everyone was concerned about was really this humongous stone washing machine. (laughs) And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history and then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like a history jungle through which rages a river of booze. Hang on for your lives. First, the history. This week, back in the 1950s, the town of Sylacauga, Alabama, was ground zero for a historic first. Now, the folks at your dinner party probably won't have any idea what it is or where that is. But thanks to our friend Michelle Philippi, you're about to. Annie Hodges was starstruck, figuratively and literally. It was November 30th, 1954, and Anne was taking an afternoon nap. Suddenly, she sprang awake to find her radio destroyed and her hip in total pain. She thought her space heater had exploded. In fact, she'd just become the first person in recorded history to get hit by a meteorite. It was the size of a grapefruit and it had crashed through the roof. 
Anne wasn't seriously hurt, but that didn't make the story any less crazy. Within hours, the house was swarming with hundreds of reporters, and Annie was a media sensation. She appeared on TV quiz shows, newspapers printed her life story, and her picture was in Life magazine. Meanwhile, the Smithsonian offered Annie 5,000 bucks for the meteor, but her husband turned them down. With all the publicity, he was sure he could get even more. Except one problem, the Hodges landlord. She figured since she had to fix the hole in the roof, the rock that made the hole belonged to her. The lawsuit dragged on for months, and by the time the Hodges won, the world had pretty much forgotten about the whole incident. Their meteor was worthless. Annie eventually donated the rock to a local museum, against her husband's wishes. They separated eight years later. Both of them admitted their marriage just wasn't strong enough to survive a collision with the media. I mean, a meteor. So that's the history now for the drink to serve along with it. I am talking to Robert Bagwell. He is bartender at Bottle Tree in Birmingham, Alabama. And Robert, you've heard the story. What drink does it inspire you to make? I came up with an ELE, an extinction level event. (laughs) So you're saying it's a strong drink? Yeah, it's pretty strong. What is in this uh, thing that's going to destroy humanity as we know it? Uh, You need a half a glass of Guinness. It's going to be a drop shot style. Oh, really? This will be the second week in a row we've had a cocktail with a beer in it. Oh, really? Yeah, my co-host will not be happy, but let's continue. So the shot, you're going to have a half ounce of half and half, a half ounce of Kahlua. All right. A half ounce of Jägermeister. Oh, my word. And one more, and a half ounce of uh, butter shot. <laughs> Something grandma would enjoy. Yeah, that's right. Just sweet enough for the kitties. So you just you mix all that stuff together and drop it into the uh, into the Guinness? Exactly. Oh, like a meteor. That's what I was going for. I thought the Guinness first, of course, because it's a dark beer, and that would make a good earth. And then I just tried to think of things that would complement that. Right, and they just struck you. So, Brendan, I'm very sorry. It was another beer cocktail. You know what? I, I can actually live with that one. Really? Yeah. Well, yeah. That surprises me, because I actually... <laughs> I don't think I can live with anything that involves a Jägermeister. Did you get, did, was your father attacked by a Jägermeister <laughs> as a young man? <laughs> no, it, it's just, have you ever looked at the bottle of this thing? The label, it looks like something Ted Nugent would hallucinate. <laughs> it's like a deer with gigantic antlers and a crucifix, like glowing between its well, antlers. The Nuge was a Jägermeister. He's a master hunter. Well, that's true. He, he kills animals with his guitar solo. More uh, elks have died from castratch fever <laughs> than people want to know about. Uh, folks, no animals have been killed in the making of our Twitter page. Follow us at Dinner Party DNLD. Our guest of honor this week is writer George Saunders. He's been compared to Mark Twain and Kurt Vonnegut for his satire and his ferocious wit. His short stories and essays have won a slew of awards, including a MacArthur Genius Grant. And recently, he spent a week in a homeless encampment in Fresno, California, and wrote about the experience for GQ in a piece called Tent City, USA. George, why did you live in a tent in Fresno? I was a big, am a big Steinbeck fan, and so somehow the idea of checking into that uh, part of the country and seeing how, how people were living was really appealing. It also, I'm getting to the sort of part of life where I'm befuddled by the things I still don't understand, so the chance to kind of look at poverty up close and see what it really is all about was kind of, in, in, you know, invigorating in a way. 
When you arrive at the tent city, you talk about how you were looking for this Steinbeckian village and you didn't find it. What did you find? This crazy kind of sub-third world community, you know, like three blocks from a base, minor league baseball stadium. <laughs> and it had its own rules and it was kind of savage and lots of fights. And some of the people had been out there 20, 30 years. There was a lot of, of mental illness. And also, as I found out, it was sort of a drug dealing site. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of the drama of the piece was I really thought it would be kind of I don't know, hobos, you know, play, <laughs> playing guitars and kind of happy to see me and tell me their stories. You also, you made a decision to use humor in, in discussing poverty. I know you're a writing teacher. Why does humor work here? Well, I think if it's an honest part of how you experience things. Like at one point, this woman, you know, we're talking and, and she said, are you married? I said, yeah. She said, how long are you staying out here? I said, we. She said, I'm going to rape you. <laughs> now, there was something funny about that because yeah. she was just standing, you know, she was very sincere that she was, you know, and then she said, oh, not really. But, but, it, but it, was, um, it, it was funny and it was true. In the piece throughout, you kind of oscillate from kind of compassion towards the people you meet. And um, I, I, maybe disgust is too strong a word. Yeah. How did you feel at the end of this? Honestly, I felt really happy to get out of there. You know, as a fiction writer, no matter how hard you try not to, you end up sort of codifying your ideas about life. You know, I can go out to a place like this knowing how I want to respond, which is as a kindly, compassionate, big-hearted observer, finding moments of brightness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that wasn't what was going on. And so the thrill of it is in the middle of the trip, you have to reject what's false. So, I mean, the honest response, which I wasn't always proud of, was very complicated. Now, at the very end, I think I was able to say there's not a necessary link between happy feelings in my heart and compassionate action. So to say this guy is a crack addict, he makes no sense, he's mean to the people around him, that doesn't disqualify him from kindness. Now, I have to elegantly make a pivot into our two standard questions, which aren't as profound as what you learned in the tent city. The first one is, what question are you tired of being asked at dinner parties? How did you get in here? (laughs) <laughs> is this after you're doing the tent city piece or before? No, no, no. I mean, it's, there's no change, but it's just the same the same response. I'm trying to get a reality show, so I just will sometimes go to parties I'm not invited to. You maybe Matt Lauer will be calling next. Oh, God. So our second question is, tell us something we don't know, something you've never talked about in interviews before. Um, the other day, I was talking to somebody about influences, and it occurred to me that one of my biggest literary influences was uh, the talk show host Dick Cavett. Huh. You know, it was in the 70s, and I had just, my mom and dad gave me my own TV, and every night I would just choose him over Johnny Carson because he was sort of edgy and intellectual. Yeah. And, uh, I was thinking that was the first time I ever conceptualized myself as a potential intellectual. So I've never told anybody that before. Well, thanks for uh, making me feel really bad about my interviewing skills by bringing up the master. No, you're great. Are you kidding? No, no, really. Thanks. Maybe second guess. Oh, you have the same quality as Dick Cavett, he says, buttering up the host. I think I'm moving to the tent city. (laughs) So, Brendan, actually, you do, I think, share a lot with Dick Cavett. We share a house. He's my roommate. That's weird. (laughs) And there's also... He wears my long johns. And... (laughs) And similar to him, you have yacht parties with William F. Buckley. That's right. And my mom has a crush on me. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, if uh, you have something you want to get off your chest, you can email it to us at dinnerparty at americanpublicmedia.org. So we've met our guest of honor. Now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. Yes. And Brendan, uh, Thanksgiving has passed. Alas. Sadly. Uh, The weight I put on last weekend has not. It remains there like a big, fat inner tube 
of <laughs> That's a lovely, meat. lovely picture. There's an inner tube of meat in my refrigerator, the leftovers. That you can never get rid of. They don't leave. I think I had turkey oatmeal for breakfast and a cranberry <laughs> sauce yogurt drink. But it is a dilemma, right? What to do with all that stuff. Eat uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> true. Or sell it, as Cantor's Deli is wont to do. They ah. are one of the most famous Jewish delis in America, and they just had a turkey sandwich contest. What timing. Indeed. The winning creation will be served at Cantor's for the rest of December. The other day I wandered over to speak to Dina Stein. She ran the competition, and I asked what kind of recipe she got. There were a lot that were similar, which helped us know people were really craving the whole Thanksgiving thing. For instance? Uh, turkey, mashed potatoes, stuffing, cranberry sauce, challah. Turkey, no mashed potatoes with stuffing, cranberry sauce on rye bread. Basically our Thanksgiving, but on bread. <laughs> so what was the oddest sandwich submitted? That's tough. Um, <laughs> well, I think one person wrote before she submitted it, keep an open mind, which right there that sort of alerts you. And she actually didn't have any turkey in her sandwich, so... Uh, Just human flesh. <laughs> exactly. No, we don't serve that. Uh, it's, it was potato salad, coleslaw, tomato, onions on white bread. White bread. She said white bread. In a Jewish deli? I know. I tried not to cry when I read it, but I thought, you know, she tried. And actually, I think she's from Israel, so she might know some things that I don't know. That's true. Maybe that's the most Jewish thing ever. Exactly. So what was the winning sandwich? Who won? The winning sandwich was the sloppy Sussman Sammy. There's two brothers. Each submitted a sandwich that was identical, except for one had sweet potatoes and one had mashed potatoes. Sort of hedging their bets. Exactly. But the thing that I was thinking is that we want to be sort of different than Top Chef. We don't really want brothers competing against each other here at Canners. We really want to bring brothers and families together. So we decided to actually combine their sandwiches, but have it be both sweet potato fries and mashed potatoes. Actually, that sounds so you get the crunchy and the soft with it. Yes, we're all about different textures. Was this your favorite? Do you, would you have voted for this as number one? I'm sure you liked it. But. I did like it. I. I also liked the one that I thought was second, which had some chopped liver in it and avocado smoked turkey. But the chopped liver sort of overpowered the turkey, so if we're really making a turkey sandwich contest, we can't have something that overpowers the turkey. Especially if it's chopped liver. I'm not a fan, sorry. We can still be friends, but I think chopped liver is delicious. So Rico, I'm really happy to hear about that contest because really? Thanksgiving leftovers make me sad. Because they're like gray and... <laughs> crusty with that sort of no, like half <laughs> ripped piece of foil over top I, of it. I like to think of it, you know, every year the yams and the cranberries and the sweet potatoes. I think that they, they picture Thanksgiving as like, this is my moment. This year I'm getting this, into the food mainstream. They get the spotlight. I'm not just going to be a holiday food this year. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be like mac and cheese. I'm going to stick around. I'm going to be like ham. You know? But it never happens. But never, it never happens. They'll always be the character actor of the food world. <laughs> it's, a, it's a sad thought. And that's the Dinner Party download for this week. You can be our best friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash dinnerpartydownload. You can also catch us on the Arts and Culture Show Off-Ramp, hosted by John Raby and Queena Kim. You'll find that at kpcc.org. Thanks to Nihar Patel, Josh Rogazin, Jeff Peters, and Ravi Carmen for helping us set the table. Thanks also to Peter Clowney and Greg Sinders. We leave you, as always, with One for the Road, a song to play on your way to or departing from this weekend's dinner party. And here's one from a teenage Warren Zevon. Before he was a werewolf of London, he was half of the duo Lime and Sabelle, and this is from 1965. It's called Follow Me. Bon appétit.
I'm Rico Galliano. And I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Rico, look out for the lion! <laughs> <sighs> Thanks, Nuge. Close one.